Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to part two of our podcast series with uh, Raj Sodia. My name is uh, Hitesh Shah, and I'm a Director of Business Development for BDO here in the Bay Area. And I'm excited to have a second conversation with Raj. Uh, we did a podcast on Conscious Capitalism 101 um, earlier, and that one focused more about what is conscious capitalism, um, why is it important today, um, what are the consequences of and the benefits of being a conscious company, what are the risks of not operating in the, manner, in the same manner, and uh, we described the Conscious Business Leadership Academy. Uh, today, uh, Raj, you and I are going to focus on um, the board's role uh, in conscious capitalism and uh, make make a connection between conscious capitalism and ESG. Um, you have, in our past session and in all of the work that we are doing together and what you have done through your uh, life's work, you've made a very strong case for uh, leaders, for specifically for CEOs, to focus on conscious capitalism. Um, what about the board? What about the board of directors? Is this something that should be on the board's radar? Yes, it's good to be with you again. Um, and absolutely, this uh, must be on the board's radar uh, because this is about the long-term uh, prospects and survival and relevance uh, of the company. And if you're not paying attention to these issues, as I talked about last time, you know, you are incurring massive risks on multiple dimensions. So the boards have to be part of this conversation. They have to uh, buy into it for the right reasons. They have to understand it uh, deeply, first of all, and then be committed to it. Uh, they have to have what we call courageous patience because a CEO who comes in and says, I want to do this, you know, you don't expect to see the outcomes uh, within the next quarter or the next year, right? It might take a couple of years for things to start moving in the other direction because you have to invest first. So cultivating courageous patience there and having a clear understanding of why we're doing this and why is it imperative uh, to do this is essential. Uh, and, you know, I have, I have uh, come to this realization uh, somewhat painfully, I would say, because uh, I have worked with two very large public companies uh, in the last seven, eight years. Uh, engaged with the CEO and the leadership team on this full-scale transformation journey, right? And, um, you know, in the first of those cases, the CEO was initially reluctant. I mean, this was a processed foods company, and he had just become CEO uh, of this company. And uh, one of his C-suite people had uh, met me and introduced me to him and said, you know, we really need to do this uh, for the future of, of this company. And he was reluctant, you know, his his uh, his first annual report said that we aim to be the best investment in our industry, you know, the best investment in the food business. 
And I said, well, you know, that's not a purpose. That should be an outcome. But, you know, what is your purpose? You know, how are you relevant in the world today? Uh, they had been around for 100 years. And then uh, he went home. This was in November. And then he had Christmas at home with his two adult children for the first time since becoming CEO of this company. And both of his kids told him, Dad, we don't buy any of your stuff. We don't eat that stuff. Okay, that's not how we eat. <laughs> that's not how most of our friends eat, you know. So when I met him in January, he was a changed person. He said, oh, my God, we need to do this. You know, we need to change. Otherwise, we're going to be irrelevant, you know, and uh, and just uh, disappear someday. And so then he personally took charge of this. He became the head of the team that was working on purpose first, and then the whole journey was to follow him. And after a couple of months, we had a pretty powerful purpose statement for this company, and it was revealed before three, 400 of their top leaders and signs everywhere saying this company born in 20, uh, in 1913, reborn in 2013, et cetera. And there's a palpable excitement there. And then he says, you know, the board is putting a lot of pressure on me to merge uh, with another company um, in our industry. And he said, if we do that, all this work will be gone and it'll be, there'll be a massive layoff and uh, it'll be just about increasing margins and market share. And he said, I told the board over my dead body that we need to do this, you know, we can't, you know, he refused. And he got a standing, he said, if I do this, that I would personally make, I forget about $40 million, I think. I said, I would personally make $40 million tomorrow, which is one of the problems, by the way, with the shareholder whole thing, you know. There, there are certain kinds of incentives for mergers and so forth. But anyway, he got a standing ovation. And then two weeks later, I pick up the paper and I read, he and his entire leadership team were fired because the board was not privy to all of this conversation. They didn't quite understand it, even if they heard about it. And they're all people generally occupying board seats who come up, have come up and have been very, very successful under the old paradigm, right? Where shareholder value is the only thing that matters, where the definition of fiduciary responsibility is limited to that. Right? That's what the board sees its role as. But actually that's not, the, you're not a fiduciary for the shareholder, you're a fiduciary for the corporation itself. Right, the well-being and flourishing of that entity called the corporation. That's what your job is as a CEO and as a uh, as a board member, right? Shareholders don't pay your salary. The corporation does. And so you have to see to the well-being of that corporation. And so so they pulled the rug from under uh, his feet and and all that work was thrown out. There was a massive layoff, you know, and all the you know, it entered a period of great, I would say, decline and and massive suffering inside that company has resulted in the years since which is not a shock to me, it's still, still very sad, right? But I think that's one of the big challenges. And similar thing happened with an oil company that I was working with in Texas. And they too, just like processed foods, are challenged in today's environment. They say, wow, we have to find a purpose that inspires our people. Most of our people feel kind of ashamed, <laughs> a little bit embarrassed to say who they work for. And how do we create something that's compelling and truthful? And then how do we you know, do all of this? And same thing happened, another merger. All the work was thrown out the window, right? So, so I've come to realize that uh, you know boards are critical to uh, enabling this to happen, um, and it addresses so many vital big picture issues uh, that unless the board is doing that, it's really I would say a dereliction of uh, their responsibility to the uh, not only flourishing of this corporation but to all of its stakeholders. All of their lives are impacted by those board members' decisions, you know. And so I think that is the biggest shift that we need to make in board members is what, what do you define as your fiduciary responsibility? 
right? And are you still thinking of yourself as simply there as representatives of the shareholders? Because that's how, you know, you end up getting board seats, right? Activists come and they acquire shares and then they demand board seats and all of that. So, you know, nobody's representing the interests of, of other stakeholders fully. And there's, uh, you know, there's tremendous evidence. You know, and I come from the world of academia and so I'm, I keep one eye on what is the research showing and there have been some very, very good uh, sort of summary papers looking at the negative consequences of, uh, you know, of shareholder value maximization. I mean, there's one paper in particular that, uh, that, that is a good summary of the 10 uh, negative consequences of focusing just on shareholders. And, and I just read a quote from there. The literature provides compelling evidence that governing companies in order to maximize current stock prices can lead to severe negative consequences for all corporate constituencies including shareholders themselves. Right? So it's not even in shareholders' best interest to just focus on shareholders, right? Yeah. And then, you know, we can go through some of those negative consequences, but they are, they are quite, quite significant, right, that, uh, that, you, uh, that you find in the research. Maybe we, uh, we elaborate on this a little bit. You know, you, you talk about the boards having a very, very narrow fiduciary view of fiduciary responsibility uh, as being limited to financial performance, you know, talk more about about that because this is also something that you and I have talked at length about connecting with shareholder primacy, maximizing shareholder value, and boards are always kind of you know um, behind that veil, saying you know our job is to to focus on financial performance and shareholder value. Talk about your view on, on that particular topic. Well, you know, it shows up in so many different ways. So one of the things that we say is that the company is its own most important stakeholder, right? Even ahead of employees. You know, you have to focus on the well-being of the company as a whole if you're in a leadership role there, right? That means paying attention to all of its parts, right? Shareholders, customers, employees, you know, the whole thing. And if you look at in the last couple of decades, certainly in the last 15 years, what has happened there is that there's been massive financialization of companies and massive underinvestment in the future of those companies. And so public firms are investing a lot less in their future than they used to on capital spending in R&D and so forth. And where is the money going? So 93% of profits over a 12-year period went to two things. They went to share buybacks, you know, about 70 or so percent of S&P 500 uh, profits went to share buybacks and about 23% went to uh, dividends. Right, which means only 7% left over for investing in the future and doing other things. And it used to be dramatically different in the past. right? And <clears throat> therefore, what happened, a lot of these companies are hollowed out and they are very, they're not very resilient. They're taking on debt. I know in, in 2015, uh, S&P 500 companies actually spent over 100% of their profits on those two things. You know, they actually borrowed money in order to buy back shares, which, you know, you, you can justify that sometimes. You know, you can make a case that interest rates are only 2% and it's cheap capital and all of that. But the fact is that you are not adequately investing in the future of these companies. So that is one of the consequences of that, right? Because when you do that, of course, your share price goes up, right? When you do share buybacks, the number of outstanding shares is down and therefore earnings per share is up. And then if you issue dividend, that goes on top of that. And everybody uh, who owns a lot of shares benefits in the short term. But what are you doing to the long-term prospects of that business? So that is certainly one massive uh, issue. Uh, you also have the whole, uh, you know, so the earnings management kind of game that goes on, right? Because, uh, you know, manager's compensation is also based upon that. 
Um, and so there's there's evidence from McKinsey that 80% of CFOs would actually decrease R&D and maintenance expenditures in order to meet earnings targets. Right? So these are all kind of the the dysfunctional side of when you have when you're simply driven by you know the share price and, and the shareholder value. You also end up taking massive risks. Uh, you know the financial crisis uh, uh, was a function of taking massive risks in order to maximize shareholder value. But what was the net consequence? We actually destroyed $34 trillion worth of wealth between 2007 and 2009 because of those massive risks that were taken, right? And so, and then the, the damage, the environmental damage that happens as a consequence. So, you know, just in one year in 2008, 3,000 companies caused uh, over $2 trillion of environmental, environmental damage in one year. So either massive costs which don't show up, right? Because many of those are so-called externalities. Um, there's uh, there's other factors. Income inequality is 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 a, is a uh, is something you know that we're trying to minimize employee what we pay our employees, right? So that when we do that, our share price goes up. When we do a layoff, you know, share prices tend to go up. So that whole, which is one of the big crises in the world, I would say, climate change, income inequality, and then the whole inclusivity, uh, inclusive growth, whether there's diversity, inclusion, all of those kinds of things. These are some of the biggest issues, and they're all being contributed to by this uh, shareholder mania uh, that we have uh, that exists. Uh, mergers and acquisitions is another domain where very often, because typically there's a large premium paid uh, when there's a merger, and all of the options vest immediately, right? Then you might have vest some things that are meant to vest over a five-year period, but they, if you can merge the company immediately, you get to uh, walk away with all of that. So there are massive, massive incentives. Uh, to engage in mergers uh, where they may not be in the best interest. Often, they usually are not in the best interest of employees because they usually lead to mass layoffs, right? But they may not be in the best interest of the company in the long run as a whole as well. That's why you see mergers. And then a few years later, you'll see spin-offs, right? <laughs> and then you'll see mergers. Uh, you know, it's kind of uh, crazy. And the game's being played for reasons other than the flourishing of uh, of all of the stakeholders. Uh, there's lots of job insecurity. There's high levels of stress. You know, there's uh, lack of engagement. I mean, all of those are the fruits of having this uh, this this focus. And also, unethical behavior, amoral and unethical behavior, uh, increases when you have so much of a focus on uh, profit maximization. You say things like what Volkswagen did, you know, with the whole emissions and the, you know the diesel engines and so forth. You know, even what happened at Boeing with uh, uh, with some of the things with the 737. Right, and uh, where they prioritized the financial bottom line over safety, and that doesn't happen in a company that is rooted in purpose and values. You know, what's the higher value and what's the lower value? And of course, the, you know, the 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 saddest tyranny, I mean, irony of all of this is that the long-term financial performance actually declines. The more you are obsessed with shareholder value and profit maximization. Uh, the evidence shows that actually those companies, uh, you know, perform poorly relative to others. And at an aggregate level in the in the American economy, ever since this became the dominant paradigm in the early 70s, uh, overall aggregate return on assets has gone down about 50%, you know, on average. So companies are actually making less, uh, you know, poorer returns compared to what they what they used to. So those are those are some of the factors, you know, they add up to quite an indictment of the old paradigm. And yet, Many of us, many, many companies and boards are clinging to that still. Yeah, 
and 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 so you know my next question is uh, if you were to kind of flip it and you know what aspects of business uh, are not uh, receiving appropriate or adequate attention by the boards where should they be focusing their attention to that are not getting the attention that they deserve right now well you know having served on a couple of public boards you know i would say the conversations and I tried to steer them in a certain direction, but I think what what is missing generally is uh, conversations around culture, right? Corporate culture matters a lot. You know, as Peter Drucker said, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch, uh, which is really true. Strategy is important, but culture is even more important in your ability to execute. Uh, and that's the differentiator across uh, companies within an industry is what kind of a culture do you have? Uh, we're not talking much about purpose uh, in the uh, in the boardrooms. Um, <clears throat> the core values, which again gets into the uh, into the culture. Uh, generally speaking, I would say the 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 leading indicator. We had a lot of time focused upon last quarter and last year and what were the numbers and you know, going into great detail and granularity on all of that, but not looking enough at the future. Uh, looking indicators, right? What is our level of employee engagement or passion and commitment and all of that? Uh, what's our level of customer loyalty and customer advocacy and so forth? The things that actually are signals that we're doing certain things right and, and those dividends will, uh, you know, will, will pay off in the future. I think those are, those are essential uh, elements. Uh, and then leadership, of course, uh, who do we appoint as CEO? And the succession planning and what are the criteria used to select leaders? I think that if you want, we can talk about that separately. But that too, I think that's that's sort of a huge one, right? How do we, on what basis do we anoint leaders? It's so critical. I, I think that's a that's a podcast in itself, um, Raj. Uh, you know, my uh, friendship with you, and I've got a chance to study. Your work and 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 couple of things that really come to mind is you know that I'm now paying attention to is you know as I look at companies there are a lot of companies that don't have a purpose statement you know going through business school business schools were not teaching uh, students about purpose statement they were talking about mission and objectives and goals and and KPIs and stuff like that um, and I'm you know really appreciating the value of having a really strong uh, purpose statement that aligns all the stakeholders, and, and 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 it's amazing how effective it works if you have a really good purpose statement. And then one of the other things I learned uh, through you and your program and all of the stuff that you do is uh, uh, the notion of KPIs in terms of key purpose indicators uh, instead of just key performance indicators. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. these are some amazing uh, techniques and tools for people uh, people to pay attention to. Let's uh, switch our conversation a little bit and uh, talk about conscious capitalism and as it relates to ESG. Make the connection for me, please. Well, you know, ESG has been around for quite a while. I mean, I think that that acronym or that, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Not acronym. What do we say for those initials? Uh, but but lately, I would say in the last two, three years, suddenly it seems to have taken off and it's on the radar of everybody. And to me, it's a good thing. I mean, these are things that we've been talking about because we talk about basically that's a stakeholder model, right? Environment is, I use the acronym SPICY, 
Right? So society, partners, investors, customers, employees, and the environment. Right? So we're now bringing in the environment. You know, in the social, it's bringing in employees and customers, impact on all the people and on communities, hopefully, uh, within that, right? And then governance, you know, some of the other ways, of the, the uh, mindsets and others and, and things that we're using to run the business. So those are all, I think, uh, rowing in the same direction as conscious capitalism. Uh, <clears throat> the danger that I see is that companies, first of all, start to do this from a compliance mindset that this is what is now expected by the uh, you know by the stock exchanges or by the analysts or by the institutional investors they all want to see the ESG so we're doing it more as an obligation and not as a uh, in a proactive way right so it's outside in motivation rather than inside out number one and secondly that we stop there and we think that if we're doing this then we're you know that's the whole game that this is we're a conscious business if we are issuing an ESG report, and I, that's not true. You know, ESG really doesn't talk about purpose, right? It really doesn't talk about values per se. It really doesn't talk about what does it mean to be a conscious leader and how do we develop, you know, spiritual intelligence and systems intelligence, and all the things that we are, you know, covering in our programs. So there's a lot more to being a conscious business than simply checking all the boxes under ESG. It certainly helps because those are important things that as a conscious business you would need to be doing. Um, in some ways, I think ESG probably gets you closer to being a you know a B Corp, a benefit corporation, you know, that uh, that also is, is fairly detailed in many of those dimensions, right? But I think there are elements about, about these four tenets that are missed uh, in the ESG. So we are, I would say, ESG++, plus plus, uh, and those plus plus things really matter. And I think we have to, uh, you know, keep that keep that in mind. Now, having said that, you know, our movement is entirely in support, and you know, it's it's, it's only advancing the ball down the field. I feel, but uh, but there's more to be done. Totally, totally agree with you. Um, what um, what are some of the greatest issues that are facing the world today, and how can boards think about them and and help? Uh, you know, uh, fix some of those things that the world is facing right now. Yeah, so there's consensus building around what are some of those big things, right? Of course, you know, we're going through a pandemic and that's hopefully a short-term thing that we managed to deal with and innovate our way through in many cases and learn things and, you know, and those those will will help us in the future. You know, a lot of companies have learned how to operate more effectively. They've given people more flexibility, all of those. That, those are all great but the biggest pandemic is still out there, and that is uh, climate change. And that's an existential threat, as we all very well know. And if you look at our current trajectory, it's not it's not where we need to be. So that is something that every company has to be uh, looking at and, and contributing towards uh, the right solution on that. And the largest companies in the world account for a big chunk of, of, of what's causing that, right? And, uh, and we have to be very, very aggressive uh, on those things. So we have to make sure that we are not only reactive, <clears throat> reacting to the uh, minimal demands, but actually going beyond. You know, you mentioned Ramon, uh, Mendiola, Sanchez, and FIFCO earlier, right? where they have gone from, in, in all the areas of, uh, of water and carbon and solid waste, etc. they set aggressive targets to get to zero, no negative impact, but then to actually have a positive impact. So they've got the world's first positive uh, water beer, 
you know, positive carbon products, etc. You know, interface carpet, which is a highly polluting, uh, you know, nylon-based carpet uh, industry uh, that they operate in, but they are actually now producing carpet that is you know, overall positive in terms of environmental consequence. So again, that's what we have to uh, uh, aspire to and and uh, and uh, and uh, operate as, not just doing less harm, but actually now restoring and replenishing. The second one is income inequality which uh, is massive and is behind the backlashes that we are seeing everywhere. The rise of populist movements, populist leaders, the flirtation with socialism. You look at a country like Chile, which is one of the most fundamentally laissez-faire capitalist societies uh, since the 70s. In fact, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were kind of inspired by what was happening in Chile to uh, to reduce the role of government and make more, create more of a free market system. But but they went so far in that direction that they almost had a revolution last year. Millions of people on the street, and now they're rewriting their constitution, and <clears throat> the pendulum is swinging very much in <clears throat> the other direction. Probably too far, I would I would hazard. So we have to pay attention to this because this is a bellwether. Uh, and a warning signal of, of potentially revolutionary energies being unleashed. And then you end up with Venezuela's and you know those kinds of disasters. So we have to pay attention to that proactively. You know, what can companies do to that? You know, it's pretty basic. You have to do what Unilever has done. I think in 2016, Unilever said, we are going to pay a minimum wage, uh, not, not a minimum, a living wage as a minimum, we'll pay a minimum, uh, a living wage in all 130, 40 countries that they operate in. Right? So every place that the NBDWR has employees, we're gonna find out what is a living wage there and make sure that they are above that. And that is way different than a minimum wage. And they have now uh, said that their suppliers will have to meet that standard by 2030. And the suppliers, I believe, are in 180 countries. Right? So that'll have a massive multiplier effect. Right? And they will help them, show them how to do it. Right, because it's not something you can, you know, snap your fingers and do tomorrow. Because that'll, you know, it could destroy many businesses. But then you, over time, can learn how to do that. And there are ways to create business models where, in fact, you're able to pay people well, just like HEB does, just like Costco does, just like Trader Joe does. Most conscious companies do container store. All of them, right? They pay their people well and give great benefits, and yet they don't have a competitive disadvantage as a result of that. There's a wonderful book called The Good Job Strategy by our friend Zenep Tan that looks at how that works, you know, identifying four companies that actually pay their people much better, provide better benefits and better working conditions, and they have all kinds of operational uh, advantages as a result of that, right? So income inequality, we start, it starts at home. I know many of our companies, uh, conscious companies, have a much more compressed salary ratio between the highest pay and the median pay. You know, Whole Foods has been 19 to one for many, many years. Uh, Costco used to be below 10 to one. Typical public company is about 400 to one. You know, many like are over a thousand to one, right? That that ratio. So I think just having that internal sort of more of an egalitarian mindset to say if people at the front lines are paid well, better than their peers in other you know companies in the industry, but the people at the top are paid relatively modestly, because you're not just using money as the only reason you know to work here. You're saying you know you believe in the purpose and the values, and therefore you're paid well, but you're not paid outrageously well. Uh, in these companies, right? So I think income inequality is the second one. And then of course, the whole diversity, inclusion, uh, you know, inclusive uh, elements that takes on different complexions in different countries, depending on their history, right? So in India, it would be the caste system and the fact that many people were marginalized and considered untouchable and unemployable or relegated to 
certain professions. Of course, in the U.S., there's a legacy of slavery and discrimination uh, that came with that and other you know, disadvantaged populations. In many countries, it's women. So in the Far East, I think many of those countries like Japan uh, and Korea, et cetera, you know, very, very microscopically small percentage of women in leadership. So whatever those be, those factors, right, we have to proactively pay attention to those because they are the result of, uh, of blind spots that we may not even be aware of and not actively discriminating, but there are systems that are creating those barriers for people and, and understanding and, and uh, figuring out how to, you know, be proactive on those things, I think is another critical element. So all of these are, are big issues and the board, they should all be on the radar of the board. I know that, you know, at the container store, as soon as the George Floyd stuff happened, you know, uh, immediately we had reports, we were asking for reports about how are we doing? You know, what percentage of our employees are African-American and what about in managerial ranks and leadership ranks? And if, you know, if the numbers are not right, then why not? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Those are important questions to ask. So I think we have to pay attention to all of those uh, at, at a board level as well. Yeah, I think these these three items that you mentioned, almost to, in my mind, they should become uh, agenda topics uh, at every board meeting, at least one uh, topic per board meeting, if not all three at the same time, uh, but really relevant. Uh, uh, last question I have for today's podcast for you, you know, um, you you alluded to it a little bit. I mentioned that this may be a topic for a whole podcast in itself, but maybe briefly let's touch on it. Uh, succession planning, that is one of uh, the critical roles of a board. In fact, I've heard so many board members in my lifetime say that their number one job and probably the only job is to hire and fire a CEO. Uh, how should boards be thinking when it comes to appointing a new CEO in, in the realm of everything that you've been talking about in this podcast and the last one? Yeah. Yeah, it was so vital, you know. Um, so if you're, let's say, a conscious company that has been led by a very conscious leader and all the consequences that flow from that, and now that person is retiring and you're looking to replace them, and if you end up with somebody who doesn't have that mindset or if you decide you want to hire somebody who's just going to focus on the financials, etc., what might have taken decades to build up can be destroyed very quickly. If you bring in the wrong leader into uh, into a company, I mean, it can be devastating, you know, to the culture and to what makes uh, makes the company special. Uh, so you have to look at those leaders more holistically, right? Many times in public companies, you know, you look at their track record and you look at what they've done in previous roles and what they've done, mostly through the lens of financial performance, right? What happened to the stock price? What happened to market share, etc. But you don't ask. How was that achieved and what were the consequences? Because very often those consequences on people, et cetera, if it was achieved in a way that caused massive suffering for people, those consequences show up over time, right? You don't see them right away and the leader moves on to the next one. I mean, there've been many such leaders like that, right? Like Al Dunlop was known as Chainsaw Al and he kept getting hired. And there are many others, you know, Jack Welch to some degree had a, had a philosophy that was rooted in that. And the consequences of that showed up years later for his successor to deal with. You know, we say that you should measure the success of a leader based upon how well their success, successor does, because that means that they plant the seeds for creating the right conditions, right, where the company would do well in the future, and then did they have a role in, in putting the right person in place. So we have to have a holistic lens with which to look at leaders, 
it has to include their ability. You know, we, we have this checklist, right, for the qualities of conscious leaders. I think we should look at all of them. They have to be strong human beings. They have to have moral courage, moral fiber, right? personal power, not just positional power. They have to be resilient. Uh, they have to have energy and enthusiasm. They have to be rooted in love and care. That's a tough one, but you can see it. You can feel it, right, if you, if you do your job properly. And that combination is critical. Strong people who are rooted in love. Strength without love is tyranny, and love without strength is ineffective. So how do we find leaders who embody both of those things? And then we have some of the other elements, and the you know, key in those is the, the intelligence, emotional intelligence. The data shows some startling things, actually. One is that the level of EQ in an organization is inversely correlated with your level. Uh, starting in it's actually kind of a Belgian. It's highest in middle management. It goes down as you go up, and then it goes down as you go down. So what does that mean? The CEO and the C-suite has very low EQ, and the board has even lower EQ, right? Because they all look at life through the lens of numbers. If you go down, you know, to the middle management, they're dealing more with people, etc. They tend to have higher. And then if you go down, it goes down again. It needs to actually be like this. It needs to be higher the higher you go up, right? Emotional intelligence is is far more critical to uh, uh, to being a good leader than, than many other things. But then also systems intelligence and spiritual intelligence, understanding meaning and purpose and you know all of those kinds of things. I uh, have to matter. So we have to figure out how to gauge those and how to assess them so that we can actually pick, I would say, what uh, consider a whole human being. So not only do they have the love and the strength, you know, you can talk about the four energies that I refer to in the healing organization, what defines to me a whole person? They have the elder energy, the wisdom, they have the child energy, the uh, creativity and the joy and the humor, right? The healthy child. And then they have the healthy father energy and the healthy mother energy, right? So they're strong and they're loving and they're wise and they are joyful. The summary phrase we use is they're the wise fool of tough love. You know, can you be wise and foolish? They seem contradictory, but they're not. They can coexist. You saw you see it in the Dalai Lama. You saw it in Desmond Tutu. You saw it in Gandhi. Wise and foolish and tough and loving at the same time. It can be all of those. Herb Kelleher, to me, was the leader that I, I hold up as a great exemplar of all of those things. You know, And that's really, we have to aim high because you know, that's what it means to be a leader. And the other shocking statistic or data you know, that I have seen, the research has shown, the way we traditionally hire and promote leaders, in, in especially in public companies, based upon their ability to deliver numbers, right? And therefore, we have created a system that selects for certain attributes, right? And what has been the net result of that? There's a couple of studies, one in Australia and one here, that I have seen that looked at psychological profiles of senior executives, C-suite executives. Right, and there are, there are assessments that you can do to to look at the extent to which somebody has a sociopathic or psychopathic tendency. Right, and there's a book called Psychopaths in the Boardroom. What that found was that about 21% of senior leaders, executives, C-suite, and board, meet fit the criteria for a sociopathic or psychopathic personality. What does that mean? That means you don't care about you have no empathy. You don't care about the impact of your actions on others. You're only watching, looking out for your self-interest and, you know, your stock value, et cetera. And most companies align that with the company because they give you a lot of stock. So you think you're doing the right thing for the company, but but you have no uh, remorse or no feeling for the impact you're having on people. 
So think about that. 21% is in boardrooms. It's only 1% in the general population. And it's about 20% in high security prisons. People are locked up for life for doing pretty grim things. But the similar percentage exists inside companies. So that is a pretty darn heavy indictment of the way in which we have selected and promoted uh, people in most traditional organizations, right? As Peter Zengi has said, power and virtue need to go together. Right? The higher up you are, the more power you have, the more virtue you need to actually demonstrate. Now, in most of our systems, they actually don't go together because the virtuous do not seek out power and the powerful are in it not to serve but to actually, you know, to serve their own ego and not to serve others, right? So we have to have power with and not power over people. That's what we need, somebody. Your power is important, but it has become so corrupted because mostly it is exercised in an abusive way, right? But we can use this healthy power. I wrote a book called Shakti Leadership, which is about that, right? Which is about integrating the masculine and feminine into leadership. So it's love and it is strength together. That's really the most powerful thing that you can do. If you can combine love and strength, unconditional love with great personal power, right? That is the holy grail for human beings and especially for leaders. Wow. Raj, on that note, um, what an amazing conversation. Um, I want to thank you for, uh, for your wisdom, uh, for your time, for sharing you know, all of these amazing uh, concepts and thoughts with our uh, audience of the board members and uh, any any final words from you, from you Raj? Uh, no, I would just uh, like to express my appreciation again for, uh, for BDO and for you. And I think uh, we are making a difference and I hope we can continue to do this and to scale it and to get this to become, I think we are in the middle of a slow moving tipping point where the pendulum has swung and decidedly uh, this is moving closer to the mainstream that people are, are recognizing that this is something we need to do. Uh, the old way cannot continue. Business as usual you know, will, will destroy us. And the question is, how do we do it? And that's, I think, what we're learning and what we're teaching uh, in the uh, Conscious Business Leadership Academy. Thank you. With that, special thanks to our audience for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash BDO Knows Governance.